Welcome to Your Cathedral Podcast, a podcast from the Cathedral Church of St. Luke and St. Paul in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information on our church, please visit yourcathedral.org. Father, from the depths of our soul, we cry out to you. Would you hear our cries? Would you meet us here? By the power of your spirit, as we open up your scriptures, Lord, may Jesus be seen and known and experienced to us. May we be transformed to look like him. We ask it in his name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated, friends. There are a few days in the life of our church where I am grateful for an extra layer or two. And today is one of those days. And I think the offer does still stand. Pete said, we've got a lot of these hanging around. So if you need one, just wander up here and we'll get you one. So this past summer, when I was on sabbatical, my family and I found ourselves wandering through the coastal forests of Olympic National Park. And because my wife likes adventure, meaning she likes to stray from the trails, we found ourselves, from my perspective at least, not from hers maybe, from my perspective, just a touch lost. And you've been in big forests, you know, it feels like it gets dark very quickly. And so it was getting dark and we felt lost and it felt just a touch scary. And in the midst of our wandering, our five-year-old started to sing. Dark, scary woods. And we all laughed so hard. We just were cracking up. She just is always someone who's erupting in song. And we laughed. And then it became somewhat of our song for the hike. We just kept singing, dark, scary woods. And it became our theme of that entire trip. There's a familiar comfort in songs in the midst of our journey. And that's not true. Just true in situations like that where we're singing and hiking. I mean, that's a very common experience, right? If you're walking somewhere, you're whistling or you're singing together. Humans have done that throughout our entire history. Or even just something as simple as creating the perfect playlist for a road trip, right? There's something special and comforting about music in our journey. And so this morning, we are going to look at a song that was composed for a journey, and so I invite you to turn in your Bibles if you brought them with you, or if you didn't, just feel free to grab a few Bible. And we haven't said this in a while, but if you don't have a Bible or, or, or don't have a new Bible, feel free to take those. Those are there for you. So if you don't have one, feel free to take that home with you. But if you turn in the Pew Bible, it's on page 518. And as you're turning there, I'm just going to tell you a little bit about this particular psalm because it is unique. It's one of 14 psalms that are known as a psalm of ascent. And most scholars agree that these psalms were composed and uh, intended, their intended use was as the people of Israel went up to worship. As they journeyed, as they sojourned from their homes, the country of Israel is not very big. You could make that journey fairly easily on foot. So as they gathered and they walked, that these were the songs that animated their journey, going up to the temple in Jerusalem to worship, to meet the living God. And so if you read through these Psalms, 120 up to 134, you'll find that each of them has a particular aspect, a particular emphasis on God's presence with his people and his care for his people. They're songs of comfort. One writer put it this way, the Psalms of Ascent are there to remind us today that our life with God is a journey. It is a journey with God, but also a journey with his people on the way to God's eternal kingdom. And so they too can bring comfort in the midst of our journey. 
And so we jump in together. Verse one, and the psalmist writes, out of the depths, I have cried to you, Lord, Yahweh, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive, the psalmist prays, to the voice of my pleas for mercy. The psalmist uh, begins this song in what can only be described as a place of despair. It's easy to look past this and go to the rest of the psalm that does build towards a place of hopefulness, yet it begins in a place of despair. When this phrase is used in the Old Testament, out of the depths, oftentimes the writers have the vision of the sea, which in ancient times was this, was this picture, this metaphor for chaos, and oftentimes was a metaphor for death, for the place of the dead. It's from that place, this place of a watery grave that the psalmist is crying out to his God. The commentators that I looked at this week emphasize that there's in Old Testament cosmology, there's a, there's a spatial difference. And you read that a lot in the scriptures, in the Old Testament in particular, that the Lord is the one who is in heaven, in the heavens. He's high above. He's above the firmament in Genesis language. And then when we are in places of despair, the dead are in Sheol or in the depths. They're in this place. And so there's a spatial difference distance. The Lord feels a long way away. And so the psalmist is crying out from this place, but rather than turning away from God, feeling that distance acutely and turning his face away from the Lord, he turns toward the Lord. The psalmist turns toward his God and cries out in the midst of it. I've heard someone say at one point that the only difference between a complaint and gossip and prayer is who we are speaking to. And that's what you see here, is that rather than turning away, rather than turning to others to commiserate and to lament, the psalmist turns his attention to the Lord. And so the first comfort that we find in this journey, in this song accompanying our journey, is that wherever we are and however distant we feel that God is, we can cry out to him. We can cry out to him and he will hear. He will turn his ear to his people, to their cries, to their pleas. But the psalmist's cry, in contrast to many other of the psalms, is not directed at enemies. It's not an external plea for God to intervene in salvation, to save him from his enemies, to help establish his kingdom, to give him wisdom. It's not that kind of external relief that's desired. It's an internal thing. And we find in the second verse, that the center, the primary issue that the psalmist is crying out from is his iniquities. He says, if you, O Lord, should mark our iniquities, who could stand? If you were to keep track, if you were to list out every single iniquity and sin that each of us carries, who could survive? Who could remain in your presence? That's not a word that we use very often, right? To think about sin, even sin itself is somewhat of a, a churchy word that we don't talk about much in our time and iniquity even more so. But the root there of this word is, is something like, you've probably heard a preacher say this before, uh, they talk about missing the mark, just a bit off. And the root here is something like that. It's a, it's a bendedness. It's a twistedness. It's, a, it's crooked. It's not as things are intended to be. It's expansive. One commentator says that this idea of iniquity that the psalmist speaks of encompasses not just the action that is deemed sin, but also the damage it creates and the consequences it threatens. 
It's not just the act itself, but it's the fallout. It's the consequences that we find ourselves in, not just for ourselves, in our own feelings of distance from God, but it's the fallout for our friends, for our family, for our communities, for our world. It's all of the various ways that sin corrodes and pollutes all of creation, all of humanity. And so this is what the psalmist is crying out for. Mercy from the depths, crying out for mercy. In the New Testament, the author of Hebrews talks about running the race that is set before us. And and to do that, he says, we need to set aside every sin and every hindrance in chapter 12. And so too for us, sin and iniquity and this theme that, again, is not talked about very often can be a stumbling block for our journey too, friends. It's both personal for us, but it's also global. It affects all of us, every fabric of our community, every fabric of our state and our city, our world. Nothing is untouched by this. It's personal and it's global. And all of us, whether we know it or not, are in some cases, in some ways, uh, victims of it. We are affected by it, right? But we are also villains of the story. We're perpetrators of it. We are wounded by this reality of iniquity and sin, but we are also those who wound others. Hurt people hurt people, right? And because this is not a thing that we talk about much in our world, in our culture especially, it's something that I think needs to be re-examined. And I, for one, believe it still probably explains how our world actually is. It's the best single explanation of how our world is intended to be, right? We look to beautiful things, good things, true things, and see the hopefulness of what the world is supposed to be like. But then we also look at all the many broken things in this world. That's what the Bible and Christians have called sin and iniquity. Cornelius Plantinga, a philosopher and theologian, says this, for the Christian church to ignore or euphemize or otherwise mute the lethal reality of sin is to cut the nerve of the gospel. For the sober truth is that without full disclosure of sin, the gospel of grace becomes impertinent, unnecessary, and finally uninteresting. Sin is our reality, friends, in this broken and twisted world. We feel it here, we see it there. But the psalmist doesn't just fixate on the problem. The psalmist remembers that you are the one who has forgiveness. With you, they say, is forgiveness. This is fundamental, the psalmist remembers and reminds us to God's nature and character. With you is forgiveness. You are one who forgives, not one who keeps track and marks all of our iniquities, but you're the forgiving God. And not just once Jesus arrives and calms God the Father down, right, in the New Testament. From the very beginning, the psalmist sees grace, sees mercy as an attribute of God's character. In Exodus 34, whenever the Lord passes before Moses and declares, this is Yahweh passing before Moses and declaring his name, the first word that he says is, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful. The first description that God gives of himself is merciful, gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, rich in steadfast love. From the beginning, God is a God of mercy. One of our great prayers in the Anglican tradition is the prayer of humble access. We say that God's property, God's nature, God's character is always to show mercy. And because of that, the psalmist responds with reverence and awe, with fear. With you is forgiveness, therefore you are feared. 
So we cry from the depths and we remember God's mercy. And in the in-between time of sensing God's distance, but also knowing that God is one of mercy, we can do nothing but wait. And so the psalmist awaits this promised mercy. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, my being waits. And for his word, I put my hope. In his word, I put my hope. The sense there is there's a word of forgiveness, a word of absolution, a word of mercy that this psalmist is waiting on. My soul waits on the Lord, the psalmist says, more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. I don't know if you've ever waited for the dawn before. There have been a few camping trips where I've longed for the sunrise. Maybe for other reasons. Maybe you've had a crying child and have longed for the sunrise. Maybe you've been in the midst of grief and despair and you've longed for the sunrise. That's the best image that this psalmist has to think about the arrival of God's mercy, like the arrival of the dawn. So when we cry out to God from the depths of our sin and our iniquity and we're reminded of God's mercy as we wait, hope begins to rise. The image of waiting is not just one of sitting back. It's one of hopeful expectation. And so I want you to imagine for a moment these early sojourners, these early pilgrims who are going to meet God in the temple. They're thinking about meeting the holy God, the one who they've heard stories about, who has done wonders for their ancestors. And they have an expectation. And yet on their journey, as they look toward the temple, as they journey, and and if you've seen and know of the kind of topography of Israel, it is going up. You go up to Jerusalem. As they're going up, they're reminded, they might be reminded of their failures, of the way that they failed to keep the Sabbath holy a few weeks back, of the ways that they may have coveted their neighbor's spouse or home or livestock. And more than that, they would be reminded of the ways that their ancestors failed to worship one God and we're drawn to idolatry. And so you might get into a bit of a fear, not a hopeful expectation, but a, a fearful expectation of only, the holy God only meets with holy people and we're not holy. And yet we're going up to meet this holy God. But then they would remember that God is the one of mercy. God is the one with grace. They would hear this song sung, just as my daughter was singing about the scary woods. They hear this song about the God who brings forgiveness. And the expectation and hope begins to rise in them. And as the dawn comes over the mountains and they see, then they all proclaim together, Oh, Israel, hope in God. For with God, there is forgiveness. With him, there is steadfast love. With him, him, there is plenteous redemption, abundant redemption. He himself, they sing, will redeem Israel. The emphasis at the end of this passage is on God's intervention. God is the one himself who will ransom Israel with his loyal love. He will be faithful to them. And so too for us, friends, as we wait and as we long, as our souls tormented from whatever they may be, crying out from whatever they are in the midst of, remember that with the Lord is plenteous redemption, plentiful redemption, confident that he is the one who brings mercy and grace and forgiveness. It's no wonder one of my great heroes, one of the great heroes of the faith, Martin Luther, called this a Pauline hymn, Pauline psalm. He loved it so dearly, of course, because it mimicked his story. Think about Luther's story, how tormented he was, 
by his sins. He tried everything, all of his works, all of his good works in order to, to cleanse his conscience. And yet reading a psalm like this, hearing this encapsulate the good news of the gospel so clearly. It later became one of his most famous hymns. He retuned it, repurposed it. This is one of the verses. Though great our sins and sore our woes, his grace much more aboundeth. His helping love no limits knows, our utmost need it soundeth. Our kind and faithful shepherd is, he who shall at last set Israel free from all their sin and sorrow. John Wesley, the great pastor and hymn writer himself, was at a Vesper service and heard this song sung. And later that afternoon, we're told that his heart was strangely warmed. All from this psalm. O Israel, hope in God. For with God, there's plentiful redemption and faithful love, loyal love. And so the question for us this morning is, what is it that your soul is crying out for today? What is it in the depths of you that you're troubled by? Is it the distance of God? Is it being in the midst of grief? Is it looking around and seeing all the many effects of sin and iniquity that are corroding and corrupting God's good creation? Is it looking at the news seeing the wars and the rumors of wars and the fear that's driving all of that? Or is it more personal? Is it something in the depths of your soul, something, some sin that you cannot seem to shake? You've repented again and again and again, and it feels like there is no hope. What is that in you, friends, that's crying out from the depths? This week in our community group, we asked the question, what, what is heavy on you? What are you feeling anxious about? And every single person went around and just, there's just such heaviness. I know many of you carry, all of you carry some level of heaviness in this, that you're crying out for God to meet you, that you're waiting as watchmen for the dawn. This week myself, I was faced and reminded of my own selfishness, the own depths of my sin. There are things that I feel like as you walk as a Christian, there are things that you feel like you maybe set aside you may be moved forward. You've leveled up and then you're reminded. I was reminded this week of all my selfishness and how I treated my family and my friends. It's overwhelming. From the depths we cry. And you're, you're the, though there's great hope from this psalm, there's a great arrival of mercy. They still looked forward to a time when it wouldn't just be the blood of sheep and goats that would alleviate their sin and not their conscience. They looked forward to a time when God himself would bring his redemption, abundant redemption, which he did with Jesus. He did through his cross. He did through his resurrection. And now he is the one that sings over us. He is the one who intercedes for us, friends. When we cry out, Jesus, the God-man, is the one who turns his ear and advocates on our behalf so whatever it is that you're feeling deep in your soul this morning, whatever distance you're feeling from the Lord, friends, Jesus hears, Jesus knows, Jesus pours out mercy. And so we turn to him. We don't turn away from him. My friend Kathleen always reminds me that it's God's great joy to forgive, that he doesn't do it slowly. He doesn't do it with resistance. It's his great joy to turn and to pour out abundant mercy on us. And so this morning, friends, take heart. Dear friends, for there's mercy and there's comfort in our journey. Amen? Amen. Let's pray, actually. Let's invite you to close your, close your eyes. Father, you know our hearts. 
you know the cries of our hearts and the desperation that each of us carry. And Lord, we say we wait for you to meet us. Pour out your hope. Pour out your plentiful redemption and your steadfast love in each of our hearts that we would be those who take your hope and your mercy with us as we go to our neighborhoods, our city, and our world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.